One random night after a long flight, I was scrolling through social media, battling a bout of insomnia from all of my travels, and I found what was an exhilarating voice preaching to a crowd during a Beyonce mass. Now the title alone gets you. It not only catches your attention, but it may make you ask, how do you actually bring Beyonce and the Bible together? I was somewhat skeptical, but then I heard this. Sometimes you have to do things your way. You don't have to do it on demand. You don't have to do it for your oppressor. You don't sing when they tell you to sing. You sing when God tells you to sing. It was the word of God like I'd never heard it before. And with that, sleep was out of the question. I had to find out who this voice was. So I set out to have a conversation with our guest today, who is not only a vessel of God, but a purveyor of a profound theology that is often unheard. Reverend Norton is not only redefining the role of women in society, but also the role of women in the church. Today, we're going to learn from her work. A little bit of my background, I was, um, I would have identified as atheist until I was about 18, 19 years old, Um, baptized in college, kind of the opposite of what most people do, Um, then was in the church, left the church, um, and came back in my early 20s, was licensed to ministry at 24 in a Baptist church in Bryans Road, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. So I've been in ministry for um, about 11 years. Ministry was really hard for me at first um, because the black church doesn't know what to do with black women, particularly black women in ministry. Um, And that's not just black men, right? But black women are really hard on black women in ministry. You're supposed to look a certain way and talk a certain way. You're supposed to always be attached to a man, your father, your boyfriend, your husband. Um, People have a really hard time with boundaries for single black women in the church. So I just found it very um, intrusive and restricting. Um, And so I worked in different ministerial roles in churches for a couple years, decided that... um, doing a PhD in Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, was just a better fit for me and that I would teach. And once I wasn't reliant on the church for my income, I decided that if I was going to be in the church, I was going to be me in the church. The people needed to accept me in the academy as a scholar on my own terms. People needed to accept me in the church um, as a minister on my own terms because God accepts me, right? Like, so why am I posturing for all of these people when I know that I have a relationship with God that is deep and meaningful? Um, And so I decided that I would be the best minister that God called me to be and the best professor that God had called me to be when I started being really honest about who I am. We often want our pastors and religious leaders to be so much like Jesus, they can't really be human, creating unrealistic and self-deifying standards to uphold, projecting what is not only a posture, but a persona being flawless, when in fact God calls us to be ourselves as we minister. We are called to strive to be like Jesus, but we have to acknowledge that we're not, right? And so... This idea that as clergy, I'm supposed to project some kind of perfection um, and and posture for people that I'm something that I'm not, which is not what Jesus did, right? When Jesus was angry, he turns over the table in the temple, right? He's his true self. And Jesus' true self is much better than me. and, And that's the way it's supposed to be. So I said, forget it. Like, this is who I am. Um, And... So ultimately, that's where the Beyonce mask came from. Reverend Yolanda Norton has a progressive ministry reinforming the plight of women in church today. It's one thing for men to say that we need more female representation in ministry. It's another 
for women to actually disrupt this ecosystem and take their rightful place in the church. It's the reminder that you don't need permission from men when you've been ordained by God. As Reverend Norton said, the Bible was written by men for men, and the church can feed into a male-dominated agenda. I often ask people that I interview and that I meet, who are you and who gets to decide? We see Reverend Norton making a conscious decision around repositioning herself within the pulpit on her own terms, bypassing the traditional scripts handed down to women to read from. She's not only standing up for women by disrupting patriarchy and dogma that serves us and not God, but also for the ways in how we bring God into our life today, for what the world is today. And let's go back into this track, Flaws and All by Beyonce and how we all relate when she says, I'm a train wreck in the morning. I'm a bitch in the afternoon. Now and then without warning, I can be really mean towards you. Now, the song could be about Jay or a friend, but Reverend Norton helps us imagine this as a conversation with God. And then the lyrics take on a whole new meaning. I don't know why you love me, but this is why I love you. God is love, period, right? So the nature of God is represented in love, affirmation, justice, peace and power, right? Um, so those are the ways that God is depicted and described in the biblical text. And because the biblical text is not, as I often tell my students, the full image of who God is, right? Because God is still alive. As, um, then God continues to show God's self as kind of powerful, loving, caring, nurturing being. God loves everyone, right? We as humans can't seem to love everyone. I'm not even going to pretend like I love everyone. But the great thing about God is God loves all people. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, for me, it's really important. I often push my students on this that um, we often want to ignore the writer of the biblical text is an intermediary in the depiction of God, right? What do you mean by that? So uh, they were describing the God that they saw. So a particular group of people are describing their understanding of the cosmos and of God. And so I, I want that to be uplifted as sacred but I want to also say, when human eyes see God, then we have to understand the limitations of humanity. That's not a full depiction of God. So one of the examples that I give to my students very readily is when we read the book of Joshua and we read about the destruction and the div divine mandate given for destruction. I, I pull my students back and I say, I question whether or not God is giving a divine mandate or whether or not the biblical writer saw war and destruction and an intent, intent towards genocide and needed to ascribe that to God in order to carry on their actions. So it's the same thing that happens when we say, Whenever we go into war and we say, God bless America, right? So we need God to be the authority that moves forward our military campaign. Well, why is God blessing America and not other nations? So the same thing is happening in the text. So we have a limited understanding of who God is. And the idea that God can be confined and and constricted to the biblical text, I, I'm always going to push back on that because if the text says um, that we shall not have idols, the idea that all that God is is depicted in one corpus, one canon, makes an idol of the Bible that makes the Bible bigger than who God is. 
Reverend Norton's simple statement allows us to create analysis to re-examine popular biblical texts that we've read and make us look at not just what is said, but its intention. When human eyes see God, our best interpretation will still fall short. Religion, exclusion, and political jockeying happen when we believe we have a monopoly on God and his truth. You see, Reverend Norton is checking us on the fact that man has been the intermediary for God in our lives and that power can and has been misused to the benefit of some at the detriment of others. This is when we ask God to show up and fight on our sides. We reshape, redefine the word, conflating his original intention with our selfish motive and mandates of man. What happens when we think our description is all-encompassing? So, you know, it, it was really hard for me to get to a point of understanding that both the progressive and conservative church have failed to understand who God is, right? So uh, I, my initial interactions were the church, with the church were out of uh, Pentecostal and Baptist traditions that were pretty conservative. And I'm sitting in these pulpits, I'm sitting in these congregations, I'm listening to uh, preachers and pastors uh, uh, condemn homosexuality, condemn women in ministry, condemn the body, condemn sexuality. Um, and that doesn't feel right to me, right? I, I can't wrap my mind around this. And, I, you know, for better or for worse, one of the biggest issues I had was that the same the same time that I was coming into the church, um, in the beginning of college, my best friend from elementary school was coming out as a gay black man. And I'm watching pe people try to um, put him in conversion therapy and all of these things. And, and, and so I, it just didn't feel right to me, right? If that's who God made him. Why do we as human beings get to try and change him? And why are you then deciding that you're going to manipulate God's word and God's mission um, to change who God created him to be? So I'm having these kinds of, of tensions and as... Um, my first career was as a lobbyist in children's issues. And I thought, man, why is the church spending so much time worried about who is sleeping with who, right. who's saying this, when there are children going hungry and people dying? And I thought, well, now we could parse out all kinds of scripture on sexuality individuality, temperance, all these things. But I'm positive that Jesus said you should care for the least of these, <laughs> right? So why, why are we wasting so much time um, developing this stringent holiness code and not caring for all of God's people? So so that so then I I fling all the way over to the the kind of progressive liberal church, and at first that felt more comfortable, right? Because all are welcome, and then I realized all are welcome except for they're not, right? So so I do believe there is some standard that we have to at least attempt to live into. I don't know that I agree with the standard that the more conservative church has developed, but there's some standard, right? And I choose to believe, even as a biblical scholar who could parse a text historically a hundred different ways, I still choose to believe in the text as sacred um, and meaningful. And um, even if I don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, I believe that it is God given, right? And I'm starting to watch people be condescending, and now you're saying these people over here who are conservative are not of, of God. And I thought, well, you're, you're both just the same 
coin. You're different sides of the same coin. Um, you've just, this kind of liberal progressive church has just elevated themselves because they don't have the same kinds of bigotries. For me, what's interesting about this is that we're in this tug of war, right? Is God liberal or conservative? Is God Democrat or Republican? That's the wrong question. The question is not whose side God is on. The question is who's on God's side, right? This is where God is abundantly consistent, right? And we're the ones who mess it up. We have got to stop jockeying to put God on our team and just decide we're going to be on God's team. And that is we will do that which is loving and generous and sustaining and just, right? So there are plenty of people who are liberal, who are judgmental, who philosophically agree with the idea of equity, equality, and justice, who are not doing anything to make those things happen, right? Um, there are plenty of people who are conservative, who are, yeah, who are judgmental, who are divisive, but probably spend more time feeding the hungry, right? Soup kitchens, things like this. So there are all kinds of ways where people on that spectrum get it right and get it wrong, and God is still consistent. God still provides grace and mercy. God still calls us to care for one another. Um, and so, I mean, that, that idea that, I, that we've pinpointed, we've developed an understanding of who God loves and who doesn't love is baffling to me. Reverend Norton explored both sides of the conversation only to find that she was studying two sides of the same coin. On the conservative end, she was hearing condemnation of sexuality, the body, and women. It didn't feel right to Reverend Norton because the same people that the church was speaking out against were the people in her life that she loved and fought for. This was personal. It didn't make sense for her to condemn these people or the people in her lives when you think about the issues we need to deal with. It just didn't make sense when we are supposed to care for the least of us. Reverend Norton helps us avoid the I'm right, you're wrong trap, calling out other people only to deem yourself the bearer of truth regarding religion. Instead, she helps us see why both sides are fractured. She saw some of the same things in the progressive church. She was comfortable at first, but found a condescending tone toward the conservative church that just masked the same inequalities and bigotry. She provokes us to answer a higher question, not whose side is God on, but who's on God's side, truly. So we have to stop jockeying to put God on our team and just decide we're going to be on God's team, meaning we will do that which is loving, generous, sustaining, and righteous. We know both conservative and progressive churches have fallen short, we have to move towards a faith tradition that unifies the body. But how do we get lost? In the old church up until today, there were demographics of parishioners who were intentionally left behind. Women who are our mothers and our aunties, LGBTQ parishioners who are our friends and our brothers, and black and brown communities. Reverend Norton sets us up to take the first steps to move towards God's side reshaping our perspective on the word and thus ourselves. The simplest reason, right, is one of the things that the Bible does, I, I tell my students often, uh, the Bible was written by men for men. So it sees men, right? Uh, and so it's easy to read the Bible and hold as primary men. Even where women show up, this is what I'm trying to cultivate for my students is what we call a hermeneutic of suspicion. Even where women show up, they show up because they feed into male norms. 
Um, so the early church and the contemporary church uh, decided that that was God-ordained, that women should be secondary. Um, and the European church decided that they were Israel, which meant that God was on their side, wow. right? Um, and so I'm constantly trying to push my students and push the people that I encountered to say, well, what happens when you're not Israel? What happens when you're Babylon, when you're Assyria, when you're Egypt, when you're the one who is oppressing God's children? We do a lot of work um, to hide our privilege and identify with the marginalized in the text. In every narrative. In every narrative. Because the Bible was written by men and spoke to men as primary, the issues of other marginalized groups in the text are pushed to the side. I think unconsciously I knew that men were primary in the Bible, but I didn't have a faith practice that allowed me to decenter them to bring in other people to learn from them as well. With the hermeneutics of suspicion, we can go back to biblical stories and move women, the defeated, and those that were on the periphery to the center and reveal a new set of things that were once concealed before. This made me think about how men use their role to fulfill who gets to be Babylon versus Israel. As Reverend Norton noted, the polarization of war makes you ascribe yourself with the deific traits in order to deem other people in other cultures unlike God. This is the template that created a lot of the issues in our society today. It is easy for us to be like God and to tell other people they are not. We always liken ourselves to the protagonist in the story, right? Assuming we are the hero, the person facing the adversity, and then playing it out in our lives every day as individuals and even as a country. This is what I'm trying to pull apart. That's my, that's my life's work, is to get people to see themselves um, and see yourselves when you are the victim. Don't stay in your victimization, but see yourself in that position and also see yourself when you are the oppressor, right? And do the hard work of dismantling that which is in your own interest that, that leads to the hurt and disenfranchisement of other people. Early on in my walk with God, my grandmother handed me the main communication channel she used for God, church, speaking in tongues, worship, and of course, praise. And those things ran their course until I needed God to show up in a different way. And like any relationship, anger, confusion, and doubt was now involved in my relationship with the creator. Instead of those traditional means, I needed to have a conversation with God. I had questions that I wanted answered. This was the stage of my life where I stumbled into a process of dialogue with God, where I would now come into his presence not to list the miracles that I needed him to perform, but to actually sit there and to have an exchange around what was going on in my heart my mind and my soul. Those initial days went a little something like this. God, if you really love me, why did you let my dad leave me? Out of all the things you could have made me, why did you make me black, gay, and poor? God, are you real? And if so, show me, cause I need a break. Reverend Norton connected me back to this practice, framing Beyonce's lyrics as a part of a conversation and pop culture. This is so powerful because it brings the everyday teachings of God to the world that we live in today as we live in it. Of course, not everyone has become instant fans of Beyonce mass or should be, or it's secular music. Some say Beyonce has no place anywhere near the church. That's their opinion. But if you ever go to a Beyonce concert, you'll know that it's church. But we all know that this was likely controversial. I wanted to know what reactions Reverend Norton had gotten from the Beyonce Mass, from both the church community and others looking in. 
And, you know, the, the funny thing is, I mean, this is conscious work that I've been doing, right? This, this is uh, years of study, uh, research. And I was not prepared for just how visceral the response would be. Um, so, I mean, so, so let me attack this on multiple levels. The first is uh, the number of people who have emailed and called and said, oh man, I hadn't been in church in 20 years. Mm. I hadn't been in church in a decade. Uh, but I was at the Beyonce Mass. And because I hadn't been in church in 10 years or 20 years, I had largely learned to ignore God or dismiss God. And now I'm having to wrestle with God for the first time in a very long time. Or I took communion for the first time in 15 years. Right? So that's one piece. In the same token, uh, I've gotten hate mail and threats from folks uh, comparing me to cult leaders, uh, condemning me to hell. Because this has to be sacrilegious. It has to be. It's idol worship. And I'm thinking, you've developed a litigious understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And so you've limited how God speaks. Of course, I'm not saying that Beyonce is a deity. That's ridiculous. What I'm saying is, even if she doesn't intend to, right, even if her lyrics are not intentionally speech to God, that there are a multiplicity of ways that we can talk to God. And if we limit our God talk, we limit our relationship with God. So I, I feel bad for people who can only pray one way. Because for me, there's something sacred about Mahalia Jackson. There's something sacred about the caravans. There's something sacred about C.C. Winans and I find something sacred in the lyrics of Beyonce. I find something, I find the sacred everywhere I go. And it makes me realize that wherever I am, God is. Um, and so that's the idea is to like make God something more than what we've confined God to be um, and to dismantle this litigious, uh, exclusive club that we've made the church into. When we think about how God shows up in the biblical text, it is as expansive as he is. When God comes to Moses, he comes in a burning bush and in a cleft of a rock. When meeting the disciples on the ship, he came in a storm. So when Reverend Norton says God is, I instantly feel God's presence in the room. It's this notion that God is absolute and uncontainable in any space. That God is ultimate and undefined, the truly I am that I am. We can ask ourselves, how do we define God or leave God undefined? In this way, God then becomes a mystery that we seek on a quest to understand who he is to us and others. And instead of us predetermining who and what God will do and use, we show up and invite in the mystery of God. I think you anticipate God in all things. Like, it, it's that simple. Um, so I'm glad you used this, this reference to Exodus 3, right? Uh, it's often translated, I am that I am or I am who I am. So if you'll allow me for just a second, the, the Hebrew, Vichye, um, which looks a lot like um, the Tetragrammaton, the uh, Yahweh, Adonai, um, that, that kind of Hebrew construction can be translated, I am who I am, or I am that I am, or it can be translated, I am who I will be. Oh, wow. Right? 
So God is constantly in action and moving and transforming across time and through time. So this idea that God is who God will be, right? Um, it sets Moses up to understand that as he's moving through the wilderness, God will be, period, <laughs> right? He'll show up in a cloud by day and a fire by night, water in a rock, right? He'll make uh, bitter water sweet. Uh, God will live in a whirlwind. It sets up the notion that God, he, God, she, will be. And so if we can learn to live in the world where we learn to anticipate God in everything and everyone that we encounter, I think that it would make for a more just, equitable, loving, and powerful world. If I encounter you and I automatically expect to see God in you, it becomes very difficult to do you any harm, to do anything other than love you, right? Because I, I'm, look, I'm looking for, and more than looking for in a way that like interrogates who you are, I'm anticipating God to show up in and through you. And, it, and that's more than a human being thing. If I expect to see God everywhere in nature, then I have to stop abusing the earth, right? Because why would I abuse God? So if we would just anticipate God everywhere, um, I think that we would find ourselves in a better place and find ourselves as better people and a better community. God just is. And when you know that God is there, you move different with confidence and not caution. It would make the world a better place if we expected to encounter God in everyone. It becomes difficult to hurt or do harm to them because we see their divinity empowered by our creator. You see, if we saw God and immigrants crossing our borders, there would not be children and families in cages under the bridges in El Paso, Texas. And if we saw God and Native Americans whom this country was taken away from, we would not plow through their indigenous lands for our own selfish needs. And if we saw God in black men and women, maybe reparations wouldn't be something we're still contending with, but something rather that we're known for. I wouldn't treat God this way, so I won't treat my fellow man like this. And here's the new awareness. God chose to meet and be with me as I chose his will for my life. And with that definition in mind, how do we actually anticipate God's actions and some of the issues that we're facing today? So I would never say that uh, it was God's will that these families be separated. I would never say that. But I believe that there are people that when, when children end up in cages, and that's what they are, they are cages. When children end up in cages and people who were unable to see injustice before see it now. Now, I don't see how they couldn't see it before, but that's me. Every time someone else enters this, the fight, every time someone says enough is enough, um, Every time someone moves and says, my party affiliation will not de define my humanity. God is showing up. God is meeting us. Every brother and every sister who takes up the fight for justice and equality, who has a revelation about someone else's humanity, right? That's where we see and anticipate God. 
And it doesn't mean that the battle is over. Doesn't mean that we've won the fight for justice, but it means that God is moving, right? It's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you feel it, mm-hmm. right? You, you can't always see these, the change, the, the victory, God kind of very clearly, but you can feel it. Um, and so for as much as uh, we are seeing hatefulness and inhumanity, we're seeing a, a new level of boldness uh, from people who are saying, um, I used to support gun, gun rights, not me personally, but you hear people saying, I used to support gun rights yes. without question. And now I've let go of that because I've seen too many children dead, right? Too many school shootings, too many shootings in malls, too many drive-bys. And now, not only do I not support this, but I am a vocal advocate for sound policy uh, to curb people's access to guns. You're seeing people say, uh, not enough, but you're seeing people say, I thought black people were exaggerating when they talked about the problem of racism in this country. I thought that when the Civil Rights Act was signed and lynching laws were enacted, that it all went away. And I'm seeing, right, the blood of Sandra Bland and Mike Brown and Eric Garner. And I now have to see that this country has a race problem. Um, I thought, right, there are all of these I thoughts that are disappearing. That's God. That's an anticipation of what God is doing in the world. He's moving hearts and minds toward a beloved community. Now we just have to keep fighting. We can't afford to, to get tired uh, at this point because too many lives are on the line. We've been trying to identify where God is in the world today when so much is going wrong or off course in our society. Reverend Norton offers this revelation. Whatever you're going through today, find God in it. It's not so much about if God is there or this should be happening. It's about calming ourselves down in the confidence of Christ, knowing that if we can actually decipher between the trouble and his promise, God always shows up. All of us have a fight. There are those of us who are drafted in the fight, either because of our race, class, sexuality, or gender. Then there are those of us who opt into the fight. When we realize there's something affecting them or others and say things need to change. No story is probably more representative of the fights we will encounter from a biblical perspective than that of David and Goliath. And I use this because it symbolizes the faith moment when you realize that God was in this all along orchestrating a rigged situation in your favor. In these situations, we forge a deeper reliance on God to win. We know that God's fight is about something more than just a policy or referendum, but for humanity, we've long deserved. Reparation shouldn't actually be something we're contending with. It should be something we're known for. Most will say it's impossible to do or we should move past it. But what happens when it doesn't impact you, but it's the right thing to get done? I'm a heterosexual black woman. I live in a world that privileges uh, heterosexuality, right? And so while I've been born into the fight of black folks and the fight of women, I don't get to opt out of the fight for LGBTQ people. I don't get to opt out of the fight for Muslim, Sikh, uh, 
Hindu Buddhist brothers and sisters, right? I, I have. I was born in the U.S. We're gonna say that's a privilege. Uh, not everybody was born in this context, so I don't. I don't get to ignore. I don't get to ignore the poverty in South Central LA or Birmingham or Richmond. And I don't get to ignore the poverty in India, right? So these are privileges that I have that I could be so busy ensconced in my marginalization that I ignore my privilege. What they is, and however you want to describe, describe they, what power structures and they have done is divided the fight so that we can't get anything accomplished, right? And so this goes back to like, I'm not trying to figure out whose side God is on. I'm trying to be on God's side. So if we had all just get there, right, then we're, we're fighting one big fight and that makes it harder. If, if I show up every time um, a gay man a transgender woman is, is abused or maimed or killed or mistreated. And every time I'm mistreated, they show up for me, then we've stopped dividing the fight. We spent all of this time playing this game of like, they hate us more. Mm -hmm. My life is harder than... We're so much time fighting each other. The, whoever the they is, they keep winning. Like I said earlier, we all have a fight. And take a moment to realize who are you fighting for? And then think about who are the people who you are not fighting for? We all have a group of people and things that we are ride or die about. And then we hit a boundary that says that's them and not me, and we're not willing to engage. So how do we expand and realize there's just one fight? Now we pick up what my grandmother would call fighting the good fight. It's the fight for everyone, and we are anticipating God in the reaction to our work. And that comfort in God's word and anticipation combined with the power you have in the fight now makes us unstoppable. I believe there are a lot of people that need to hear from Reverend Norton, but I think black women in particular, whom we push the world on. I remember my own notion of what my mother should have done for me. My father left, my mother was there, and every time we didn't have or should have had, I projected that onto my mother. I was disregarding the fact that she was making miracles every time there wasn't enough on the shelf, but a meal was on the table. She turned nothing into something with a smile, with an ease and charm that soothed me and my sister. Yet I was still holding her responsible for not only being deific, but also being the one who taught me everything. Life is a teacher, and I learned that my mom owed me nothing, but I owed her everything. What is black spirituality, and how do we speak to our sisters in the community and remind them of their own beauty in the image of God. So my message for black women is that God loves them, that we are not God, and because we are not God, uh, because that's a, that is a message that is consciously or subconsciously pushed on us, right? Fix this, heal this, solve this, deliver this, and it, it happens so much to black women and we ignore it. And we're having these conversations of black, about black female health, black female mortality rates, right? These expectations, the weight of the world is what's killing black women, right? And so I'm, I try to be as honest as I can that like, if you try to put yourself in the place of God, this world will kill you, right? Um, 
And so, so this is the beauty of letting God be God and developing boundaries for yourself. Um, I always joke, my students either love me or they hate me. Um, the ones who hate me are the ones who want to own me. So, I, you know, my students will say things like, oh, you are scary. You're mean. You're hard. These are things that they don't say to my white counterparts or my male counterparts. And I can't, and I'll throw it right back in their face. My job is not to be your mother. It's not to be your friend. My job is to teach you right? My job is not even to pastor you. Now, because I am a minister of the gospel, there are ways that I attempt to minister to my students, but that's not my job. My job is to teach you this information. Isn't it interesting that you expect something from me that you don't expect from my counterparts? I, I, all of the baggage that people try to lay back at my feet, I throw back at theirs. Um, you know, there's the saying, you have to speak your truth. Otherwise they'll kill you and they'll, they'll say that you loved it. So for me, the message for black women is testify, testify, tell the truth about what God has brought you through, testify about the harsh realities of your experience. We, we will suffer in silence, right? I, I'm not going to smile unless I feel like smiling. And if that makes people uncomfortable, that's their problem, not mine. I'm not going to let people throw racist and sexist ideologies out there and make me feel uncomfortable and not call them on that. God is love and God is truth. So I'm going to give you my truth because everybody else in the world feels like they can put it on me, but I'm not supposed to speak my truth. I'll say it. Say something racist in my presence. I'm going to call you a racist. Say something sexist in my presence. I'm going to call you a sexist. I'm going to call you. I'm not going to be angry about it. I'm not. That's a waste of my time. But I am not going to let you throw your garbage on me. And then I'm gonna, I'll be dead. Right? The text says I've come to bring life and life more abundantly. More abundantly. Right. So for black women, my message is speak your truth, live life, live it abundantly, dance like no one's watching, live in your joy and don't let them kill you. Testify. And for me, so for me, these are womanist principles. So people always talk about feminists. I am not a feminist. I'm a womanist. That is womanist is black women. Right. That's the fight that I am fighting. The, the needs, the interests, the wants, the desires of white women and their struggles do not speak to my realities or affirm my realities. My realities are intersectional. And because they are intersectional, uh, I won't be forced to bifurcate myself and I won't be forced to live into something that's not my reality. Um, so... That's, that's the affirmation. I, uh, in the class I teach Beyonce in the Hebrew Bible, um, the last thing we do in class is we watch the Lemonade movie. And there's a part that I pause and I play it on loop. And I, because I said, this is inadvertently um, Beyonce's verb, version of a womanist manifesto. In the middle of the song, she says, love God herself, right? And so this, this line that maybe would have been a throwaway is that because we are all created in the image of God, God is neither male or female, right? Neither Jew nor Gentile, black nor white. And so when we understand that we, that we can love God, her, we understand that we can love God our, in ourselves. Love God herself. Love God herself. Reverend Norton brought the conversation full circle for black women in church today. And women, black women, we want you to know we are listening. Testify and speak your truth. 
I think that best sums up what we've been able to learn from Reverend Norton's teachings and ministering today, that we need to see God in ourselves as God sees others, bringing ourselves to his side and manifest our being in the world today. Before I let Reverend Norton go, I wanted to know a verse, song, or reference point that is a guiding light for her life. I wanted to know what keeps her spiritually grounded living in her authentic truth. So there are a lot of things that I that kind of popped into my head. I think for me, the, the biggest one that I, I hold on to as minister, as servant, Fred Hammond has a song, uh, Please Don't Pass Me By. And he's telling the, the story of the blind man, Bartimaeus on the side of the road, in this song. And um, the blind man goes in the song, he says, I don't mean to waste your time, but I can't listen to the crowd. Situations in my life are telling me to keep it down, but I need you. We all have things that we, th- we think hinder us from encountering Jesus on his way. We all have situations in our lives that would tell us to keep it down. And this blind man Bartimaeus gives us license to run to Jesus, to encounter Jesus, to speak to him in ways that will shift our paradigm and therefore shift the world's paradigm. And the church said, amen. In this series, God is Democrat, we've asked two questions. Who is God and who does God love? By asking these questions, you realize we have a tendency to use our politics to create a God that looks and believes as we do. When we do this, we are bringing God to our side to serve our motives. It's our attempt to define God, but if we're not careful, we then limit and stop anticipating new moves of God and how he reveals himself and his power. The revelation of this series is that moving to God's side allows us to experience God for who he really is, the one that is omniscient, omnipresent, above any political agenda, our friend and our father, our way maker, the one that cannot be defined or contained. He is just God all by himself.